Hi, my name's Amanda. I have been working in Rwanda for the last eight years with an organization called Hope for Life. Hope for Life is an organization that is focused on helping youth to escape homelessness and build stronger families. Eight years ago when I went to Rwanda, I knew that there was poverty. The last two years have shown me that it is becoming extreme poverty. I've seen the, the marginal populations that we work with, I've seen their struggles continue to amplify. I'll never forget there was a day that I walked out of the office to go like get water or something. And when I had walked out of the office, there was these three boys asleep in the grass. Your heart breaks because you're like, these kids should not be sleeping outside. They should be in a home with family. Those three kids, like, fortunately enough, we were able to bring them in. I'll never forget the day they were so excited to come. It was three of them and their best friend. As we're leaving, he's coming to me and he's saying, Amanda, Nanje, Nanje. And I'm like, I just start crying because Nanje means and me. He was just saying, and me. <laughs> and I had to go home that night and just sit with it and be like, you know, as exciting and amazing as it is that those three are off the streets. When I go to sleep tonight, the only pe person that I can think of is Samuel, who's saying, and me, Amanda, please. Like, I'll never forget that moment. There will always be a Samuel, and I know that like for me personally, I was put on this earth for those boys. Like I, I know that that is my calling is to those kids. The joy is seeing them go from like this survival mode basically into the center where they're then able to like, all their needs are met and they get to start discovering who they are. It's just amazing to see their childhood like restored in so many ways. In 2019, we partnered with Chapel Street on an expansion project. So it included two buildings. One was a rehabilitation center that would increase our residents to another 25 bed spots. And the other was uh, facilities on site for our staff. This is for the therapist, for our caseworkers, social workers, so that we would all be together on site. So we started construction at the beginning of 2020 and we're met with significant challenges. Anything from brick shortages, supply delays. We were only allowed to operate with 30% on-site labor-wise. So as you can imagine, that slowed down our timeline significantly. We currently are about 80% finished. The hope is that in the next six to eight months, we finish the project. We are so excited to have that project done so we can start bringing in new youth over the next year. With the number of kids we're seeing go to the streets, I say more than ever, Hope for Life is needed in Rwanda. And one thing that I'm super grateful about is that we started a construction project in 2019 without even knowing what the need was gonna be, right? We're literally building a new building all while we're seeing the need continue to grow and grow and grow. And to be so grateful that God was already making a way even when we didn't know like what the need was. I'm so excited that Hope for Life does this work and that we continue to have partners like Chapel Street that make it possible. There's just so many boys who are so grateful and families for, for the work that Hope for Life does.
Amanda because she's, she's kind of shared her story with us in a variety of different ways now. Chapel Street's been partnering with Hope for Life for a number of years, but it uh, really is beautiful that we get to be a part of that, that we get to, in some small way, see what God's doing around the whole earth. Um, you know, Amanda says in that video, she says she knows that it's her purpose. She was put on this earth for those boys. She understands their calling. And a little bit of what we're talking about this morning is, is about that. But it's good to start out that conversation by realizing that we are already a part of uh, something that God is doing. Uh, to think that this small little church that started out of Geneva, Illinois, is now uh, being afforded this privilege is so humbling to be a part of what God's doing in Rwanda uh, and many other places. If you aren't aware that Chapel Street supports many different partners through what we call our Share, Serve the World initiative, uh, and I would love to ch- chat to those about, you, uh, about those to you or help you learn about some of those because there's some amazing things that God's doing. And again, all happening because of a small body here in Geneva, Illinois, Batavia, North Aurora now that where we are saying yes to what God's calling us to do. But let me ask you, if, if you were going to plan your own global movement, if you were going to design from scratch how you would impact the world, how would you do that? If you were dreaming of something that could go transform other nations, would you start with money? Okay, well, we're going to need a lot of capital to get this done, probably millions of dollars. Let's think about how we can get that together. Maybe you think about the uh, most highly qualified people. You're going to go to universities, colleges, try and find the people who are the experts, who are trained, who have all kinds of skills. Maybe you're going to need to network, get to know people in other nations, things like that. One of the best companies in the world at marketing themselves in various different uh, demographics and nations is the Coca-Cola company. Everybody knows about Coke, right? In fact, some people uh, think from uh, just kind of little studies and and questionnaires that upwards of 95% of the world can recognize the Coca-Cola logo. Even if they can't understand the language or read it, they know that symbol. Coke has reached some places that are pretty hard to imagine reaching in other businesses. For example, they've gone to Korea. Coca-Cola's in Korea. See signs like that out there. They've gone to Saudi Arabia. And Pastor Brian, this week, we were talking about this. He said that there are some tribes in Africa even, these far out from the, the mainland, that they will get deliveries of Coke bottles and then bury them in the sand to keep them cool. Isn't that strange to think that that's how far Coca-Cola has reached? Actually, one Coke executive I read this week uh, said this, My experience with Coca-Cola has changed my life. I have seen and experienced things that only Coca-Cola could do. (laughs) What a strange statement for a business executive to say. He's talking about Coca-Cola in a way that really we should be talking about Jesus. I can imagine that the disciples could say things like this. Because what was Jesus' idea to change the world? What was Jesus' plan to impact the world? It's you. That's Jesus' idea. And he's confident in it. He's not moved from it in 2,000 years. That's what we're looking at this morning is this idea that Jesus has for the way of witness, for us to be a people called to witness to the one who's loved us, who's moved in our own lives. It's an intimidating thing to think about. I don't think any of us kind of wake up in the morning and think, yes, I'm excited to go and witness today. So I want to look at a story that can give us some encouragement. Set about 40 days after Jesus' resurrection in the book of Acts, And Jesus is going to kind of give his final instructions to his disciples before he leaves. Let me read this to you from Acts chapter 1, starting at verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. 
He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So just a couple of details here as we start this story. First of all, you'll notice that at the beginning of the book of Acts, uh, the author, a guy named Luke, writes in the first book. What's the first book? It's the Gospel of Luke. We don't often think about that, but the same author that wrote the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, they are companions to each other. They are a kind of the full story of what Jesus did in his lifetime and then what followed in the days afterwards. Luke was a very educated man. He was a doctor. Uh, he was not a Jew. He's the only uh, non-Jewish writer of the New Testament. So he was kind of from outside the local group of people there in Judea. Some people think that he was actually Paul's personal physician. But he is kind of putting this story together and he writes to someone called Theophilus. Theophilus is someone who comes up in the Luke, Luke's gospel as well, right at the beginning. This is Luke chapter 1. It says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. I don't know about you, but sometimes when I read the Gospels, I read New Testament accounts, I kind of imagine them in a vacuum. And I don't realize that there was circumstances under which these things were written. There's reasons why the, the Gospel of Luke was written, why the book of Acts was written. Every epistle that you've ever read, usually at the front end, Paul or Peter or whichever apostle is writing it will give intentions and purposes to why they're writing it. And for Luke, the reason he wrote his Gospel, the reason he wrote the book of Acts is because he wanted to make sure that the story of Jesus was shared. What he says is, I wanted to write an orderly account. I wanted to assemble all the stories. And in fact, it's, it's true that Luke interviewed, it seems, many different people. There's actually sections of Luke's gospel which are verbatim what's written in Matthew or in Mark. Because Luke is compiling all of the stories together. Asking different people about this Jesus. He says for himself that he's been following it closely for some time past. He's someone who's been impacted by the story of Jesus himself. And now, he writes to his friend Theophilus who we think was some kind of Roman official because he has this title, Most Excellent Theophilus. So this is someone, again, outside the family of God that Luke's saying, you need to know this story. You need to know about this one that's impacted me, the one who's changed my life, the one that's done amazing things, this one who's led a movement that is now impacting nations around us. Do you know how many Theophiluses are around us today? Men and women that have not heard about the story of Jesus, not heard about his grace, his love, his goodness that are just waiting for us to give an orderly account, to give an explanation of how we've seen him at work in our own lives. Jesus knows that the world needs witnesses to who he is. And that's why his final encouragement to his disciples is to be his witnesses. Picking up back up again in Acts 1 verse 6, when they, had time and, when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed, by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. In Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. 
While they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So in this moment, the disciples are kind of immediately post-resurrection. This incredible thing has happened. Jesus has returned from the dead. Sin and death has been defeated. And now they're wondering, well, what next? What could possibly happen next? And they asked Jesus this question, are you going to restore the kingdom at this time? Are you going to set everything right? Are you going to get rid of the Romans? Are you going to set us free from slavery and taxation and oppression? And Jesus says, that's not what I want your attention to be on. It's not for you to know that. What your attention needs to be on is the mission that I'm setting you now, to be my witnesses. That's what the attention should be on. You know how many of us come to God And we say, well, when are you going to do this in my life? When are you going to do this? When is this going to happen? When are you going to come back? And really, our attention should not be on what we want God to do for us, but on what he has asked us to do for him. Because he has left us with a charge, the way of witness. And the way of witness entails three things that I think gives us an encouragement, a purpose, a power, and a promise. And I want to remind us this morning that what we talk about, it's not something that's for a subset of Christians. This is not something that exists for pastors and evangelists and missionaries like Amanda. What we talk about today is Jesus' charge to every single one of us that would call ourselves his followers. The way of witness is not just kind of one category of Christians. It is the identity of all of us to be his witnesses. So let's talk first about a purpose. A purpose. You know... uh, This last week was Halloween, and if you are a family of small children like we do, you know it's Halloween for like the three weeks prior because they're talking to you about it the whole time. I get quite excited for Halloween, though, because these days I don't have to do any of the work, and yet at the end of the night, I still have a giant box of candy that I get to pick from. My favorite thing is to to put the dad tax on my kids, right? And if you're a good dad, you know that you, you want to have a generous tax. You won't tax them too heavenly, right? But... You know, it's a good way to teach them history as well, because British people have always taxed Americans at a high, <laughs> high rate. Uh, but inevitably, you get some houses that are way more generous, and occasionally we might get something that looks like this, a family-sized bit of candy, right? Yeah, there's some generous people out there, very generous. Now, that doesn't read family size to me. That reads Andrew size. <laughs> so when this shows up, even though I know really this was given to me to be shared amongst all of us, I'll kind of pop that bag open and in one night I'll take out the whole thing and then regret it the next day deeply. But I want you to think this way about the gospel. The gospel is family size. The message of Jesus is family size. It's not meant for one person to hold on to. It's not meant for any of us to take the message of Jesus and to think about it for ourselves and consider it for ourselves but just let it end there. Because the gospel is family size. The message of Jesus is meant to be shared. It's meant to be given out to as many people as we can find who would receive it and who would hear it. That's why Jesus says, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Witness is what you and I were made for from the very beginning. You know, if we went all the way back to Genesis, the first pages of the Bible, we learned that when God created us, he created us in his image, which means the very nature of human beings is that we are reflecting something about God. And when Jesus came, his work on the cross, his work in our lives was to restore that image to to be clear in us, to to make sure that those who would call on his name, those who would receive his love and his grace and his forgiveness would again become image bearers 
of the king who loves them. So when the world looks at us, they see something about who God is. When they hear our message, when they spend time with us, they're getting a taste of who God is. That's why we see, uh, as Chapel Street, we see it all the time, probably weekly sometimes, that we want to be a church not primarily for ourselves, but for our neighbors. Because a church that doesn't exist for its neighbors is malfunctioning deeply. Our call is to be witnesses. Do you know even that word witness is a Greek word, matus? It's where we get the English word martyrs. And I'm very aware that today it's, it's the uh, day of prayer for the persecuted church around the world. So even as we gather and we celebrate in comfort, there are Christians around the world who are quite literally laying down their lives so that other people would hear this message. So that someone who maybe has never heard about the grace of God, the love of God, would hear that for the first time. And even though you and I live in very different circumstances than that, even though that's probably not something that we'll face, it's still true that we should be martyrs in a sense, that we should be people who say, I'm willing to put my life down, every part of it, every detail of it, so that people could hear the message of Jesus. I'm willing to consider the way that I act and live in my workplace, the way that I treat my family, the way that I relate to my neighbors, all of that together. I want it to be a proclamation and a witness to the one who's loved me and worked in my life. That is the purpose of the people of the way. Now, we, what we get intimidated about is we wonder, well, how are we possibly going to do that? I'm not educated. I'm not a Bible scholar. I'm not a Christian apologist who can answer all these different arguments. How am I going to have a good, healthy conversation with someone about Jesus? I just feel ill-equipped. You probably feel the same way that the disciples did. Remember that a lot of Jesus' followers were blue-collar fishermen, working-class people. They didn't have an education like some of the religious leaders. There was all parts of Scripture that they didn't understand they're talking to Jesus about it all the time, and yet Jesus chooses them. And he doesn't give them a training seminar. He doesn't give them a three-step guide to how to kind of win your way into someone's home. He just says, look, I've worked in your life, and now I want you to be witnesses to that. I want you to tell people about that. Share what I've done for you. Do you know that the world doesn't need more clever arguments and religious zealots? It just needs people who are willing to be transformed by grace who can then go tell someone else about it. Tell them about God's love. And in fact, the more that we share the gospel, the more that we act like witnesses, the more we'll understand God's grace for ourselves. One of my favorite letters in the New Testament is a book called Philemon. If you've never read it, really short book, one chapter long. And it's this letter from uh, someone who's writing to someone who's struggling with their own faith and particularly with the other people who've treated them. And he writes this letter to... Encourage this person to share their faith. It says in Philemon 1.6, I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us. What he's saying is when you share the gospel, when you take what's been done in you and you pass it to someone else, you then get a better understanding of what's in you you then get a better understanding of God's grace and mercy and, and hope in your own heart by giving it to someone else. And the, the opposite is true as well. If you hoard that message, if you keep it to yourself, you protect it, you'll struggle to understand it. Because only when you share it with someone else do you really see its, its true power and potential to bring hope. Uh, Paul Tripp writes this. He says, the position God has chosen for us in the work of his kingdom is an amazing thing. 
All of his children have a mind-boggling calling. Sadly, many of them don't understand their position. And because they don't, they're quite comfortable being consumers and quite timid when it comes to being instruments. Jesus isn't looking for timid witnesses. And really, we shouldn't be timid. Because Jesus, we know we know him. We love him. We're thankful for him. We rejoice in him. You know how you can tell if someone loves something? They talk about it all the time. It's just natural, right? People know that Pastor Andrew loves Star Wars and superheroes. Why? Because I never shut up about it. I bring it up all the time. How much more should I do that with Jesus? The one that I love. Why wouldn't it be natural for me to go to people in my life and tell them about the one that I love so much? The one that I'm encouraged by. The one that thrills me. The one that brings me hope. Jesus gives some pretty audacious instructions on how far to take his message. He tells them, I want you to be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. I've got a map of kind of this traveling out there. You'll see uh, Jerusalem in the center where the Holy Spirit comes. And then uh, the farthest out during the disciples' lifetime was probably Rome. So they ended up fulfilling this. But can you imagine what that sounded like the first time that they heard that? I want you to be my witnesses to Jerusalem. Great, yes, we're right here. That seems like a logical thing to do. Judea, yeah, absolutely. The Jewish people have been waiting their whole life for this message. Samaria, let's stop. We don't like the Samaritans. You know, the Jewish people had incredible hostility towards Samaritans and vice versa. Deep cultural divides, deep religious divides. And so they had Jesus say, I want you to be my witnesses to those people that you don't like, that you have deep disagreements with. Go and tell them. You are to be my witnesses to them as well. You're called to be witnesses to people in your life that are difficult, who you might not necessarily be excited about. And then to the ends of the earth, I, I want this to be a mission that goes far beyond your scope. That's what Jesus was saying to the disciples. He set them a task that was way beyond their ability. It was intentional. And yet here we are, 2,000 years later, meeting and talking about this because they chose to trust in the one who called them to go to those places. If they'd stayed home, you and I wouldn't be here. Don't get caught up in the huge picture and the questions and the doubts. Start in Jerusalem, in your own hometown. Ask yourself, who has God put in your life to witness to? Who around you needs to hear the good news of God's grace? And when you doubt your ability, trust in a power that is beyond you. A power. You know, this, uh, just yesterday, in fact, uh, our youngest son, Calvin, had kind of outgrown his crib, so we had to get him a new bed. So uh, Janine ordered one. We, we got it delivered and uh, go to set it up. And I've got my electric drill because it's never a good idea to try and assemble anything without your power drill. And right as I put it in the first screw and I press the trigger, nothing happens. Battery had died. I'd left it in the, the garage in the cold. The battery had died out. Uh, and so I thought, no problem. I'm a big boy. I'll just get the screwdriver. We'll put it back together the old-fashioned way. So I get that screwdriver and I'm going, and probably within five minutes, I'm sweating as though I've been running a marathon. I, I don't know whether I'm just deeply unfit or whether I've just forgotten how much harder it is to do something without a power tool. Right? I, I mean, it was so hard. Do you know it's true of the same as well? If you try to witness without the power of the Spirit, if you try and go and make Jesus known without the grace of His Spirit in your life, you'll find yourself very, very tired. You'll find yourself working beyond your ability because this task was never set to be done by you alone. Jesus says to them, you will receive power. 
when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. That Greek word for power is a Greek word dunamis. It's where we get dynamite. It's explosive. And in fact, it was explosive power. When the Holy Spirit came on the disciples, they went out, Peter preached, thousands of people gave their life to Christ. Amazing. Not only that, but they were speaking miraculously in languages that they'd never learned for themselves. The Spirit was doing amazing things. It's not just miracles either. It changed Peter into an eloquent man. Peter, this wayward blue-collar fisherman who'd always been making mistakes his whole life, all of a sudden preaches probably one of the greatest sermons ever preached. Now contrast that with the way that the people of the day kind of moved forward with their agendas, with their missions. Think about the Roman Empire. How did it spread its global movement? Through military, through politics, through force, coercion. And yet here we have the early Christians with a movement so powerful it would eventually swallow up Rome. And they never used any of those things. Never staged protests, never shook their fists to condemn Rome. In fact, even in the New Testament, in, in Peter's letters, he asked the church to pray for Caesar. Do you know what Caesar was doing at the time that he wrote that? Hanging Christians on spikes in the Colosseum and burning them alive. What an incredible witness to God's grace that Peter was not afraid of Caesar. So unafraid, in fact, that he would ask God to be merciful and gracious to his own persecutor and the persecutor of his brothers and sisters because he had confidence in the power of God to do amazing things, to grow his church even as it suffers. Paul shared this same sentiment. He says in the letter of 1 Corinthians chapter 2, my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. Spirit gives us confidence in the message that we are sharing because the results are not on our shoulders. You understand that anyone's coming to Christ has got nothing to do with you. I hope that that frees you up this morning to understand that the work of the spirit is the thing that changes hearts. It's not clever arguments, it's not Christian apologists, it's not super eloquent pastors, it's men and women who trust the power of the Spirit to do what we cannot. Jesus told us that that was the point of him giving us the Spirit. He says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment concerning sin because they do not believe in me. This was the promise that he gave his disciples on the night he was going to the cross. He said, I'm going to send you a helper, someone who can support you and strengthen you and fill you and move through you. It's gonna be on his shoulders to grow the church, not yours. And the disciples, they picked this up really well because they did something that we don't often do in our day. They wouldn't go out thinking that they were bringing Jesus to the people. They would go out with the understanding that Jesus was already working through his spirit and they just wanted to highlight it. I'll give you an example of it. Paul, in the book of Acts, later in the same book, in Acts 17, Paul goes to an area and he notices that in one of their temples, there is a statue to an unknown God. It was literally the inscription. He writes in Acts 17, for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. 
You see the genius of what Paul's doing? He's going in and he's recognizing where the Spirit might already be present and working in the hearts of people in that city. There was a God that they didn't understand, they didn't fully recognize, but they set up an altar knowing that there was someone out there who was doing something. And Paul says, I know who that is. Can I tell you about him? Can I tell you about the one that you worship as unknown that you haven't fully understood yet? There are people around you right now that the Spirit is working in their hearts. He might be bringing hope to them, comfort to them. There might be things going on in their life that are pointing them in certain directions. And what your role as a witness to Jesus Christ is, is to come in and to highlight to them where the Spirit might already be moving. To point out, hey, this sense for justice that you have in you, it's actually from God, the one who is himself perfectly just. This desire that you have to serve and love others that comes from the God who made you in his image who wants to serve and love others. Find those things in people's life where the spirit is already moving, recognize it, thank God for it, highlight it. That's why it's to our advantage that Jesus goes away so we can have this helper that does this. I don't understand how that could possibly be better and yet Jesus says it's better for you to have the spirit than me. It's better to have the spirit within you than it is to have the son of God beside you. Jesus also said that the fields are white. Do you believe that? Do you believe that right now there is work that God is doing that is ready to be harvested and all God is waiting for is laborers to go in the vineyard? So Jesus says, pray that the Lord of the harvest would send workers to collect this harvest, to to recognize, to highlight, to bring in what the spirit's doing into the church. You can see this in other countries, some places in the Middle East, people will have dreams of Jesus, have no idea who he is, but a man in white appears to them. And then Christian missionaries will come in and say, we know who that is. Let us tell you about him. The short summary of this is that we need to trust the one who's already awake. It rests on his shoulders, not on ours. And when we recognize it, when we recognize that there's a harvest to be had, that there's a power at work within us, we won't be afraid anymore to be witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, to Samaria, to the ends of the earth because we have a promise. We don't just have a purpose or a power, we have a promise. Jesus says in uh, Acts 1.9, when he had said these things as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. While they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go. The promise is this, is that Jesus does not leave us alone. He is with us and he will come again. Now I love this little account. It's probably one of the more humorous sections of scripture. Because imagine this scene, you are the disciples, there's Jesus, he has done fantastic things before, but never before has he flown into the sky and disappeared in the clouds. And they stood up gawking, wondering what the heck is happening. And right then, two angels, no less, appear next to them and say, well, what are you looking at? I don't know, maybe the guy that just disappeared into the sky? Is that not something that we should be looking at? And the angels strangely say, no, why are you looking at that? Why aren't your hearts on what he just told you? Did you hear what he said? You're his witnesses. He's sending power for you. The angels almost have a sense of excitement in them for what's about to happen through these men and women. I think the angel saw something that we don't often see. The church is about to explode. God is going to do something amazing and he's going to do it through you. 
So don't have your eyes fixed on that incredible thing because something far more incredible is about to happen through you. And then they leave a promise. They say, this same Jesus who you saw go is coming back. He's coming back. And so there is a job to do and we've got to get to it because he's coming back. Jesus knows his job. He knows his role. He knows the Father's desire for him. Do we know ours? Do we see it? Jesus told his disciples another account of this final interaction in Matthew 28. Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. There's the promise again. He's present. He's with us always. He says, all authority has been given to me. I know the fears that you have. I know the doubts that you have about yourself and your own ability. But listen, I am ruling. I'm reigning. I'm on the throne. There is nothing that you are going to face that I am not capable of dealing with. He wanted them to have confidence that they had power, that they had purpose. That's why we can come back to Philemon that we mentioned earlier. When it was written, I want to know more about God's grace in my own life and so I go and share it with other people. I want to have the full effect of God's grace in my own life so I'm going to tell other people because I know that Jesus is coming back. I know what Jesus wants to do in my own heart. I know what Jesus wants to do in the earth. I know he's on his throne. I know that there is nothing that can stand against them that in 2,000 years of persecutions and changing cultures and diverse people, the church has always advanced. He's building his church. And I want to be a part of that. Because this Jesus is coming back. Can you imagine the confidence that they could have by just hearing those words? This Jesus, the one that you know. You have saw him. You've seen what he can do. Jesus, born of a virgin, placed in a manger. Jesus who grew up suffering amongst the people that he loved. Seeing their stories. This Jesus who turned water into wine, multiplied loaves, made the blind see, made the lame walk. This one who taught and served and conquered death and sin, who walked out of his own tomb. This Jesus who is now at the right hand of God and who holds all things together by the word of his power. This Jesus who is the radiance of all of God's glory, the exact imprint of his nature. This Jesus who tells you that he will be with you. That he stands beside you when you witness to him. That his spirit will move in the hearts of people around you. That's the confidence that drove Peter to witness on the day of Pentecost. It's the, it's the spirit that drove Paul to witness his whole life. Even amidst shipwrecks and persecutions, he pressed on. Even in, through imprisonment, he pressed on because he had confidence in the one who promised him, I will be with you and I will come again. You know, I don't feel strong enough to be his witness. There's many times when I speak about Jesus to other people, I doubt my own ability. You know who's never doubted our ability to be witnesses? Jesus. You know who has never one day thought, man, I really, I should have come up with a better idea for this church thing. It's never happened. 
Jesus prays for you right now, intercedes before the throne of the Father in heaven, by name calling you out, knowing that he has sent you, he's called you, he's empowered you to be his witness. There are people around you right now that his spirit is working in, they're waiting only for a word from you that you would highlight to them, the unknown God, that they might feel, that they might sense, but they're waiting to hear his name. They're waiting to hear his story. They're waiting to hear about his grace. The fields are white, but it's time to go. And so church, we trust. We trust in God's purpose for us. We trust in his power at work in us, and we trust his promise to us. We're gonna close this morning by remembering this Jesus, this Jesus that the angels talked about. When you came in, you should have received a a small cup like this. If you didn't, just put your hand up. Our ushers will come around and make sure that you get one of these. But the reason we're gonna come to the Lord's table, we do it for a variety of reasons, not least of all because Jesus asked us to do it. But this morning, it's particularly helpful for us. Because as we doubt, as we wrestle with this calling on our lives, the best thing that you and I can possibly do is to remember this Jesus to remember the one who laid himself down. That's what drove the disciples and that's what will drive us, is to remember him. So what I'd like for you to do is to just peel off that first layer, find the small piece of bread inside. Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, gathered with his friends, his disciples, those he loved, he said, take this, it's my body that's broken for you. Eat it in remembrance of me. Let's eat it in remembrance of him today. After that, if you will, just peel off that second layer. Jesus, after he had done that with his disciples, he took a cup and he said, this cup is a symbol of my blood that is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. It's part of a new covenant. It's this blood that lets us know that he is with us to the end of the age. Let's take this, drink it in remembrance of Christ. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your table. Thank you for these symbols that remind us of who you are and what you've done. God, I pray those places in our hearts where we feel inadequate, we feel lost, we feel unsure about being your witnesses. God, that you would speak into that by your word and by your spirit this morning, that you would give us grace that we might be your witnesses to the ends of the earth. We thank you for the chances and the opportunities you've already given us to reach not only our own area, but across the seas when we think of people like Amanda. But God, we are not content with what you have already done. We wanna see you reach our neighbors here in North Aurora. We wanna see you reach our neighbors in the Tri-Cities area. God, give us grace to be your witnesses. Lord, may we not be timid, but with confidence in your spirit, share the word of the gospel, the hope of your son. It's in his name that we pray, amen. Amen. Thank you so much, guys, for leading us in worship and singing to the one in whom we find ourselves. As we close this morning, I just want to encourage you, if there's any way we can be praying for you, supporting you, we have a prayer team available. We'd love to do that. We're a family here at North Aurora. We don't want you to feel like you're on the edges. We care about you. We see you. Uh, Please come let us know how we can be encouraging you.
I want to remind you as well, uh, we do have a connection lunch next Sunday, so don't miss that. There's going to be lots of really good free food, good time for us to get together and just celebrate. Uh, and if you are interested in helping Sev with Decorate for Christmas, we'd love to hear from you too, so let us know. But now let me leave you with this morning's benediction. Jesus' words to his disciples from Matthew 28, starting in verse 18. Jesus came and he said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, he is with us always to the very end of the age. It's in his name that we go. Amen.